Welcome to the 218th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with writer Elizabeth Harris, author of the novel Mayhem, Three Lives of a Woman. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Elizabeth Harris, author of Mayhem, Three Lives of a Woman. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Great. Well, can you read two or three pages from Mayhem? All right. Uh, I can do that. Let's see. This is um, this is uh, a ways in. This is, this is uh, one of the more dramatic events. Marvin and Les Gann are brothers, and they're very drunk. And they've just caught Charlie McCoy, who's a neighbor in what looks to them like a compromising position with Les's wife. In fact, Charlie has assaulted her. Through the pines, Marvin caught sight of Charlie McCoy, clutching jeans, dodging upstream along the bank, suspected what he was doing, and leaped down the banks towards liquid light. In gravel shallows, he paralleled his quarry until he caught up with him right before the water would get deep. Sun glinted off the blade of a small open knife in Charlie's hand as Charlie angled for a dive from the high bank. Catch him, hold him. Les had followed through the trees, and Charlie, knife outstretched, dove for the water ahead of Marvin, who tackled a flying leg. The knife flashed out into the water. In the shallows on the edge of the drop-off, stringy, desperate Charlie and big, heavy Marvin splashed briefly until Marvin rolled over on him and sat up. Let him up, Les gasped from the bank. You're going to drown him. And Marvin did, a little. Charlie, spewing and coughing, fought his way to breath and got his elbows under him. Les could see the knife through the water. Excuse me. Uh, Les could see the knife through the water glimmering on the edge of the limestone shelf. He dangled, jumped down, landed solidly, and waited to get it. The little son of a bitch was going to cut me with that, Marvin said. On the far margin of the pines behind Les lay the wintry stubble field of his marriage, and he was in a new place. Sober, Les would have made a careful decision about what to do. Drunk, he thought, how lucky to have here in his hands the means to cut the little bastard's throat. But Les Gant, even drunk, was still Les Gant, and the jackknife in his hand seemed like an indecent tool with which to kill a man. A knife like that tightened screws, castrated calves, cut away snarled line, carved burrs out of dogs' coats. Coldly cutting the throat of a man being held down was a back-alley thing to do. If I caught this son of a bitch messing with my wife, I'd cut the nuts off him. Suggesting had always been Marvin's role, evaluating and choosing Les's. Not only did castrating Charlie McCoy seem like exactly the kind of hurt Les wanted to inflict on him at that moment, the tool in his hand seemed exactly right for the task. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Mayhem yet, how would you describe your novel? It's uh, a novel about the causes and consequences of uh, a violent crime 
the crime itself is set in 1936. The uh, focus of the novel is on causes and consequences from the perspective of uh, the wife of one of the perpetrators, whose life is completely changed by it. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Mayhem? Oh, I do. In fact, that's included in the novel, um, narrated or dramatized uh, um, near the beginning of the novel. When my sister and I were brought up in the suburbs in Fort Worth, but both our parents were from small Texas towns, and we were often to take, taken to visit elderly relatives there. Uh, who, who it seemed were invariably taken care of in their homes and uh, by women who intrigued me. They were, they were home geriatric nurses. Um, and there was something about the way they were treated that set them off from other people. I wasn't very familiar uh, at all with, with servants or people who had servants, let alone with different levels of servants. But, but these were what you would call upper servants. They lived in, uh, they were paid room and board and a few dollars a week. It was, in retrospect, it was a horrible job. But I was, I was intrigued by them and I must have asked questions about, about them and, and my mother and grandmother, um, put me off. Um, it seemed like there was always a story about these women and nobody would tell me what it was. So I I wrote the novel as the story of, of one of those women to try to understand how she had come to be doing this work because I had later on in life, um, at some point in in college or graduate school, I had... Uh, I've been reading Virginia Woolf, and she she talks about women of a certain class who find themselves with no means of livelihood. And um, in in Virginia Woolf, they're usually living on you know small amounts of money and very poor circumstances, with relatives or something like that. Um, but I understood that these that these women I had been so intrigued by were. Um, middle-class women who had lost home and livelihood and had no skills except for uh, housekeeping and home nursing. So I started out to write about, um, I guess, about women's labor or about the the circumstances that, uh, you know, conditioned um, the economic fate of, of certain women. And that, that was, but that was the trigger for the novel, and that's in the novel. Sure. And did you did you find that you did a lot of research about Texas in the 1930s in preparation for writing Mayhem? Um, not a lot. I mean, I have I'm at work on another novel in which I'm doing quite a lot of work research, but um, some of some of what informs the book was reading I had done just because I was interested in Central Texas. I've lived here uh, for 40 years. Well, I wasn't from here, and so I, I've, I've just been interested to read about the history, and so I had, had done some reading about it, and some of it about vigilante actions, and uh, I was, uh, you know, at the time when I read read about those, I thought, oh, well, that's really dramatic, maybe I should do something with that, but of course I didn't have any idea about it and forgot about it immediately. But later, when I when I began to construct this story, I thought uh, about where to set it and 
my mother comes from one small town and my father from another in a different part of the state, and I wasn't very interested in either of these places. So I thought, all right, let's let's set it in central Texas, completely invent a town, and uh, supply it with a social history and you know a certain you know certain type of people and uh, all appropriate to the to the region. Um, so I I. Uh, Drew on some research I had done already, and it was it was uh, at, at some point in this process I had decided to write about this particular kind of crime, and I, that's another story I can tell. But um, so I decided to set this in Central Texas, and and the action of of that of that crime in which um, two men uh, castrate or partially castrate a third suggested uh, the the theme of vigilante action as a, I mean, it's not a it's not a primary theme in the in the novel but it's it's an idea that floats around people taking the law into their own hands and not really knowing what's going on so uh, so I used some of that research that I had done already and the kind of research that I actually did uh for this novel uh while I was in process were were two things one of those was little bits of things like, um, would they have had a track? What kind of tractor would they have had in 1936? Uh, or actually, it's earlier in, in the, the novel, in the in the late 20s. What kind of, would they have had internal combustion engine tractor? Uh, would they have gasoline equipment? Uh, what else would they have? You know, how would they pump water or something like that? I found myself looking up that kind of things or things like you know, what what does cotton look like when it first comes into bloom? I mean, up close, I've I've seen it at a distance in the in the fields, but I've never actually looked at it really close. So, of course, I wanted to I wanted excuse me I wanted images for my writing, so I looked up a lot of a lot of little things, and the one big thing that I looked up was um, that I had to research. Was uh, after I had um, after I had a draft of this. I I belonged to a writing group, group of other writers, um, all of us women, uh, who read each other's manuscripts. And and my my group read uh, an earlier draft of Mayhem: Three Lives of a Woman. And um, they uh, they didn't believe Les would do the things that he. Does not not the castration part that I just read, but earlier in the novel, a part of the run-up to this crime is that um, Charlie has been harassing Evelyn uh, for most of the summer in a sort of uh, joking and sexual way, and she's been complaining to her husband about it, and he's been saying, "Oh, I'm sure he doesn't mean any harm, you know, he's a good old boy and all that." The women in my group didn't believe that he would do that, that he he would refuse to listen to his wife, to believe her about something so important. Well, my husband, who's um, also a Southern boy, had read the manuscript, and he didn't see anything wrong with it. So so I understood that the problem, my problem was, how do I make this character comprehensible uh, to this group of uh Women, mostly younger women, uh, who who don't uh, who don't believe this. 
So I asked my husband about it, and uh, he said, oh, well, what you need to read is a book by Bertram Wyatt Brown, which was called Southern Honor. This was an Oxford University Press book, which came out in, I think, the 80s sometime, and Bertram Wyatt Brown was an academic who's unfortunately now deceased. So I read this book and and, uh, understood a lot about rural communities, uh, not only in the South, although that was my primary focus, and the importance of male bonding, really, to hold the community together. And... um, that seemed to be at at the root of this that that uh, Les has a, a greater loyalty to Charlie, uh, particularly because of the difference in their their social power. Les is the oldest son of the largest landowner in the area, and Charlie is a, a longtime neighbor and was kind of grew up as a neighbor kid in relation to Les. So Les feels kind of responsible for him and, you know, kind of uh, paternal towards him or avuncular or whatever is the right word. Um, <clears throat> so that was that was the kind of research that I needed to do and then I then I rewrote the novel and and it, it wasn't I mean it was at that point it was a long story or a, mm-hmm. a novella and it, it grew into a short novel insofar as there's a distinction between those those forms. It grew by about a third in length uh, when I worked up the whole the whole question of Les and who he was and how the community works in that respect. Um uh, all all as a way of of giving some context to his um incapacity to listen to his wife about uh, something that turns out to be quite important. Gotcha. Well, I know that you taught literature and fiction writing at the University of Texas in Austin. What That's led right. you what led you to teaching? Were you always interested in books and literature and writing? Um, what made me do exactly what? I said what led you to teaching? Were you always interested in books and literature and writing? Um, yes. Um, I was a reader from from before I could read. Actually, on my website there's a short um on the uh, on the blog page on my website, which is elizabethharriswriter.com, there's uh, a short piece about about the moment I discovered reading, and it was really very early. I think I was about uh, four years old, and I've I've just disappeared into reading as a child. I read all the time, as much as I can, as much as I could, and and my parents. Um, who were ordinarily very controlling, were actually very um, liberal about what I read. I mean, that my mother's assumption was that if it was too old for me, I wouldn't understand it, which is actually not true of children, I think. <laughs> it wasn't really true of me. But, um, but although I did try to read books that I didn't understand, I remember trying sometime before I was 12 to read Willa Cather's book, uh, Death Comes to the Archbishop, and I could understand the words, but I couldn't really understand what it was about. I mean, I just couldn't get anywhere with it. So, but but I you know went to the library and went to the bookmobile and read all the neighbors' books. And and my father was a journalist, so the house was full of a certain kind of books. Uh, although I think my taste became much more literary than my parents. Um, so I I just I read from the beginning, and at some time. Uh, 
in adolescence, I decided probably a rather fanciful way that I would have to be a writer, you know, that I was going to be a writer. Although um, later on, I realized that this wasn't very practical. Um, and so I, I branched out. But yes, I was I was always a literary person. I was always uh, a lover of books. And I and I, I still am and um, read a, a lot of different things. Great. Well, I know that uh, you, as I said, you taught fiction writing and you've written uh, your own novels. What advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening? Hmm. Well, you know, aspiring writers differ a lot in, in where they where they are in their work. Um, I think that taking courses in fiction writing is probably a good thing, although some of the courses aren't necessarily very good, but um, it's useful to get feedback and to get reality checks about where you you actually are. Um, if a person cannot take courses, is not in a position to take courses, then there are lots of... There's some books you can read about writing, and uh, the, the best thing to do is to read... Uh, the kind of writing that you want to write and uh, read as much of it as possible uh, because one one learns from other writers. I still learn from other writers. I hope to learn from other writers uh, as much as I can. Um, so so those are those are ways to go about it. I think also that that working in isolation is not a great thing, and if you can't take a course. Uh, you could find a group or form a group, which is actually what I did. Find other writers who need feedback and um, get several of them together and uh, give it to each other. The The value of several is uh, – did you, did you go to – are you – are you a writer – are you a writer, Jeff? Um, uh, I'm, I'm not a writer. I, uh, I have a journalism degree. Uh huh. So. Have you ever taken a writing workshop? Oh, I have. I have, yes. Well, then you know that the, the great value of those is, is that you get, you get a range of feedback, and, and sometimes you get people saying things that are off the wall, and, and those are, are completely in con- contradiction with what other people are saying. And, and that can be disturbing, but what you're looking for is a consensus. Anything that ev- everybody or that a number of people whose opinion you can respect um, say about the piece you, is something that you should listen to. And uh, so I, I think there's value in seeking feedback from um, enough people that you can weigh their responses against each other. Great. Well, are there books and authors that you've read recently that impressed you and that you would recommend? Oh, authors that I that, that I would recommend um, recently. Let's see. Uh, an interesting... Uh, well, I've, I've been... <clears throat> I've been entranced uh, by Michael Ondaatje for for his work for several years, and uh, uh, recently I read a book of his, which is which is an old book. It's just one I I didn't didn't catch at the right time. 
which is called Anil's Ghost, uh, which is about uh, a um, Western-educated woman, uh, I think an anthropologist, or maybe she's a forensic anthropologist or something like that, who, who goes back to Sri Lanka and gets involved in quite literally digging up corpses from the um from recent um political assassinations and uh executions and all sorts of terrorism um it's a it's a very it's a very strong book although the one of the my favorite books of of Ondaatje's is uh the cat's table and i've also written about that on my uh my website one of the things that that i like about it uh, and that i found intriguing about it was the way he combines a very slow moving genre which is the memoir so in fact it's a fictive memoir but it's it's the genre of the memoir with a very fast uh moving story which is a crime crime story or it's a, a story about a a prisoner's uh, attempted uh, and, in fact, realized escape, uh, and all this takes place on shipboard. Now, I I love that book uh, so much that when I finished it, I thought I'm going to go back and reread that to see how he did that. And so that's that's a certainly a book. I, I know a lot of people enjoyed that. That was very very popular um, a couple of years ago. So those are, those are books I I would suggest if if I if I'm released from the uh, requirement to talk about things that I've I've read recently I could talk about uh, some some older books that made sure, a hu- sure. huge huge that, that... impression on me. Well, you know the the a couple of a couple of books that I read at different times were Doctor Al's Ragtime. And Russell Banks' Cloud Splitter, which is, as you might know, is about John Brown. Um, and I think what I what I began to think about, or, or what in, in reading Ragtime, and 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 was particularly intrigued about in reading Cloud Splitter, was that um, the idea that historical settings and characters can provide opportunities to write about still hot issues of the present. And that's what really attracts me to to the historical setting in Mayhem. And one of the reasons that I left the story of the novel's origin in the novel was in order to have in the novel an authorial character with a presiding um, feminist consciousness, it, just in there. I mean, I didn't want to talk about uh, feminism. I didn't want to import a, uh, you know, contemporary judgments into this this event of the past. But just to have her in there is a way of. Uh, I became to me. I, I hope it works. I mean, a way of of having that uh, contemporary awareness of gender issues in there because it's a it's a novel with with a number of gender crimes in it. I mean, of course, the centerpiece is the castration. That's a gender crime. You can't castrate somebody unless they have testicles. But um, but the the novel is full of subtler gender crimes as well. Uh, the the 
the incapacity of, of, of the husband to hear his wife about the harassment and everybody's assumption that this woman who is deeply traumatized um, did something wrong. Uh, what was echoing in my mind throughout writing the novel was older women, something older women used to say, it's always the woman's fault. So I've, I've been very much affected by novels which, which suggest uh, that one can write about contemporary issues uh, by writing about uh, history or writing about uh, historical settings, which is, which is what happens there. Uh, other, other books that, that really intrigued me, um, Ian McEwan's Atonement, which I know a lot of people liked a lot too, um, for the possibility of incorporating memoir about the novel into the novel. That is a certain kind of meta metafiction. Uh, writing, as he does at the end there, about the telling of that particular story. It's a contemporary feeling thing to do with historical materials and um, something that I found useful, as, as I said, in in mayhem other a couple other books A.S. Byatt's novel Possession Julian Barnes's Flaubert's Parrot these were books that were revelations about the possibilities for writing what are essentially detective novels uh, detective stories set in libraries or archives the character goes in search of something about the past um, that's uh that's very interesting to me. <clears throat> I have done some research in libraries and, and felt that felt that impulse, just the, the fascination of trying to track down something, and uh, and the idea of incorporating either genuine archival material uh, or fictive archival material into a novel in, in Flaubert's Parrot it's genuine archival material uh, up to a point and in Byatt's novel it's it's fictional you know she she invents the archive that her character is is um, examining but all that all that was very suggestive to me and got me thinking about things uh, another book that uh, affected me a lot was Pat Barker's book Regeneration which is the first book of a trilogy set in World War One, and uh, she got permission for that to use the papers of the poet Siegfried Sassoon who is a major character in in that novel um, and it's about uh, it's about pacifism and it's about uh, what we recognize now as post-traumatic stress disorder. But I thought it was interesting the way she she drew on on real library material. Some of it's published and some of it's not. Another another uh, novel of that same sort that occurs to me is Michael Cunningham's The Hours. Uh, which incorporates quite a lot of material from the Virginia Woolf diaries. If you happen to have read those, you realize just how much there, how much there is, and some from 
from the essay, uh, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, she creates the character of, I mean, Michael Cunningham creates the character of Mrs. Brown. Uh, Wolf has a sort of different, different Mrs. Brown. Um, one of the things I liked about all that, I mean, the incorporation of archival material, the invention of archival material, or uh, however one, one wanted to do it, was the the way that different forms and registers and textures of language could be crossed um, so, so that, um, the, I mean, combining them creates a kind of effect that listening to the world creates in, in which you, you get different, uh, different textures of language in the, the hearable environment. And I, I just like that. It's a, it's a way of playing with language that, that, uh, affects me powerfully. So, and there's, there's some of that in Mayhem, um, in that, um, not only do you occasionally get the, I hope not, to great intrusion of the, the uh, metafictional author to, to comment about what's going on, but um, the um, newspapers, the newspaper article about the crime, and the stories about um, about historical, the, the local historical stories about vigilante actions, especially the one about the the call out in which they really round up a bunch of people they suspect of robbery and hang them. Um, the kind of story that's handed down from from different um, ancestors in the same town, but in slightly different way because people were there and had different perspectives on it. I just I just like that um, incorporation of, of of language from different sources and with with maybe different functions uh, in into fiction. Sure. So so what are you writing now? Are you working on another novel? <clears throat> I'm actually working on two, but one of them I think is is pretty much pretty much done. Uh it's historical. Uh, it's not historical. And um except insofar as it's set in the end of the twentieth century. Does does that make it historical or not? <laughs> I'm not sure. Not sure, right. Depends on how old you are. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> um but that that's a novel which is about another gender crime. Um it's about it's about uh, a stalking a woman who's who's stalked for a very long period of time, and that I'm gonna oh just let sit for a little while I think. Um, the other one is is a historical setting and is is Texas in the 19th century, and um, is about well. Yeah, I probably shouldn't talk too much about. It. At this at this point, it's about a family story, a kind of foundational family myth that turns out not to be true. It's about it's about a woman who isn't who is by profession an archivist, who's a a, a librarian, but it's really about an out of work librarian who discovers. Documentary evidence 
uh, quite a lot of it pertaining to uh, her own family, which she never knew. I mean, uh, never knew this archive existed. And she goes to where it is held. It's held in a library, and she goes there and and reads it. And in the process, discovers that this uh, this family story, which has conditioned and and uh, her family's at least her her generation of the family um, of their lives, and to a very significant extent, distorted their lives, um, is not true at all. And she got she gets interested in trying to discover discover how it was created. So I mean, it's a it's a novel that gets into the question of how how historical myths are created, and um, and and I think that's you know just in terms of the setting that's going to apply to the post-Civil War Southern uh, myths uh, about the war and about uh, Reconstruction. But uh, I'm not... Uh, none of this is graven in, even in letters yet. It's all kind of inchoate. I've written multiple drafts of it, but it's still in the complete mess stage. So <laughs> that's what I'm working on now. Okay, well, we'll look forward to, to reading that. Um, again, we've been speaking with Elizabeth Harris, author of Mayhem, Three Lives of a Woman. The book is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Elizabeth, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thank you so much for asking me, Jeff. I enjoyed talking to you, and I hope I haven't harangued on too long, but I guess you Not can. Not at all. Not at you all. Can edit, you can edit it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks a lot. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.